fact that there's even, I guess, this idea of what being on track means. It's like you say on track, and mm. I know exactly what you mean by that. Exactly, that's kind but of broken, right? Yeah, but it's like, what does that even truly mean? Yeah. What are you measuring? What are you deciding is important um, that makes you on track? Mm. And so I guess that's sort of coming back to that idea. It's like it's more about the process than the mm. actual outcome yeah. or what you what you choose to measure and what you choose to value um, that comes out of that process, mm. I guess. Welcome back to Subcut, the medicalish podcast for anyone who is... Uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> welcome back to... Welcome back to Subcut, the medical-ish podcast where we get under the skin for issues that might be interesting if you are a high school student or a medical student or a current doctor or just anyone interested in healthcare. My name is Justin. I used to be a doctor. My name is Neil. I'm a fourth-year medical student. My name is Emma. I'm a third-year physiotherapy student. So let me paint you this picture. You have just finished medical school. And uh, you've spent the last six years of your life studying. So let me actually ask this question for you guys. Oh, God. How much medical knowledge does a first year, fresh new grad from medical school, how much medical knowledge do they actually have? Compared to what? Compared to, so let's say that 100% is I can look at most cases and confidently diagnose and know what the next steps are in terms of how to manage it. And then 0% is, I just don't have any idea. So if 0% is like a lay person who would just look at something and say, okay, something seems wrong, but I don't know what it is. Mm. And 100% is actually knowing exactly what to do. Mm. Yeah. 30%? Oh, yeah. I would have, yeah, I would have said actually a much higher percentage initially, but after some of the previous runs I've done, I've actually sort of been able to appreciate well, how if, in if depth these specialties are. A year ago, what yeah. would you have said? A year ago, I probably would have said 60. Yeah, 50, 60%. I often hear yeah. that when I ask this question. But now I'd, really? I'd say probably like 40s. That I'd sounds say. quite confident. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I think that's oh, actually a... Th more naive. <laughs> <laughs> it's common though, that's mm. that, that number, because... A lot of people will think that when they exit out of medical school, they have all the medical knowledge that they are they, they need to be a doctor. It's about application as well, though, right? Not even just application. <laughs> you know, they should actually be able to apply a lot of that knowledge. So what they've learned, they should be able to apply most of all, or at least know how to apply the knowledge, even if they've forgotten the stuff itself. Mm -hmm. So they could look it up again, but they'd know how to apply it. And, and in a way that that's, that's true, but it just vastly underestimates the complexity of the human body mm. and the range of conditions. Mm. So it's just the fact that in six years of medical school, you only learn the basics. Mm. You just don't learn in depth at all. Mm. Each specialty has more than the entire of medical school's worth of learning in it, just in the specialty. So you finish medical school, you want to be a radiologist, you have an entire medical school's worth of knowledge, yeah. probably more to learn as in that training pathway. So. It's kind of like high school versus like university. You know, medical school is like the high school. It it really just gives you the basic amount of information to be borderline competent, competent just yeah. safe. Mm. It gives you enough knowledge to be safe. Mm. Now that is saying a lot compared to a normal person, right? Is that like um, 
like Nick said in that previous podcast, yeah. right? Like compared to a lay person, your knowledge is Quite light years away. Yeah, yeah, it is a different world mm. completely. You know, mm. that a lay person versus an actual doctor, albeit junior, mm. is incomparable knowledge gap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's that's a clear, clear answer to my change in my percentages from last year to this year, where yeah. last year I didn't have anywhere near the amount of experience clinically, and I still don't have as much compared to my older um, classmates and doctors and stuff. But this year I can appreciate how much more How there much is more there me. is, yeah. And I still, like, it's probably asymptotic. I had yeah. no idea. Just so before you sort of look at it from a lay person looking into it and you think, wow, there's so <coughs> much knowledge mm. that's gained, mm. uh, whereas now you can sort of see it from how much more there is to know. Mm. So from a Dunning-Kruger graph point of view, you've just come down from Mount Stupid. Yeah. That's, that, that's <laughs> what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you don't know what the Dunning-Kruger graph is, just um, have a look. Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, the re- so the reason I say that is that, okay, so to paint this picture, so you've just finished medical school, and so you have about, realistically, you've got like 10, 20% knowledge of what's sort of needed to just look at a case and just diagnose it, to be honest, mm. which is still light years ahead, you know. A layperson is 0%. Someone that spent 100 hours on Google getting their Google University degree, you know, they're at 0.1%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 10% is just like incomparable still. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, so you, doctor. yeah, you're a new doctor and you're entering into the wards and uh, you're entering into, let's say, the general surgical department for the mm. first time and you are just overwhelmed. Mm. There is so much to know. There are so many patients. There are so many cases. There are so many protocols. You don't know what blood tests to do, when to do them, what time to do them, how many times a day, what numbers to check, what number, if it's wrong, is worrying for you. And all of these have distinct answers to them. Mm let alone what happens during the operation specifically, let alone how to manage any of the complications, how to manage the patient properly, preoperatively. Mm. And there's so many things you don't know. It is overwhelming. Mm. You're doing this run. And then so you've got your registrar and your consultant above you who's supervising and you get bits of learning here and there and you're learning most of it on the go. But you're really, you are really thrown in the deep end, seriously. Mm-hmm. And then so you, you do your ward round for that day and you figure out the plans, you execute all those plans, you book everyone for their scans that they need, so they get their CT scans or their MRI, and then they're booked in for their surgery, so they go to get their surgery. You make sure that you follow the protocol so that they get all the preoperative checklists done. You make mm-hmm. sure that when they come back to the ward, you've checked them out to make sure there's nothing concerning. You've used your medical school knowledge to do a physical examination, and you've realized, okay, this is a stable patient who, I, who I'm not worried about, and you're developing that sense of acumen. And so you make that call and you make that decision. And uh, indeed, the patient is fine. And then mm. the next day, your consultant rounds on them and say, yes, yes, this patient is very good. It's mm. fine. They read the note that you wrote after they came back to the ward. And they say, okay, good. I agree with everything that was on here. Very good. Uh, you keep doing that. And now sort of uh, two weeks later, doesn't seem like a lot of time, but when you're working as a doctor, two weeks goes by both quickly and in an eternity. You gain so much experience in that mm. first two weeks. Mm. By then, you're feeling much more confident. You have seen hundreds of patients. You've seen the same condition dozens of times. You have reviewed so many patients you can't even keep count of, and you are just a machine. Mm. Patient comes in, patient goes out. You know exactly what to do. It's a a complete, smooth flow. You've even been on call. You've had a great on call. There was it wasn't too much going on. There was a patient had an infection. You managed it fine. And now you're on for the weekend. Okay. And so you come in on the weekend. And the patient, there's a patient 
who's there and you do an examination and you think, okay, it seems like they're pretty stable. There are some vital signs that were a little bit off for a bit, but you reckon they're probably doing okay. You say, all right, tell the nurse to just contact me later if there's, there's any issues. And then you sort of leave it at that. And you go on and do your shift and then you hand it over to the night person. You come back the next morning and the patient you reviewed has died. Now you are in some serious trouble because you were the last doctor to see them. You didn't pick up on this potentially very critical condition that should have been picked up or potentially noticeable. You checked the blood test that they had last night an hour before you reviewed the patient and it shows that they had a really high potassium or something, mm. which could be easily life-threatening because potassium is incredibly important in the functioning of the heart. Mm. So you could have looked at that potassium. You could have seen that it was elevated and you could have done something about that. But for whatever reason, you didn't. Mm -hmm. So now, here's the question. Are you a competent doctor mm -hmm. or not? Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's, that was that's a lot. Yeah. What do you think? Just off your initial impression. You would initially say no, but everything is relative. You know what I mean? Mm. It could have just been one case, but it could also be that you're just, it's the confidence has gotten to you and now you're just so comfortable doing the same things and you're mm. looking at the processes, you have this checklist, you're ticking <coughs> off these things. You think that because you've done this checklist, you've done your job and you move on, but you don't look beyond that checklist mm. and that sort of is where the incompetency happens in my mm. opinion. Mm. And it's, and it's where you found that source of confidence as well. Mm. You'd be using it as, you know, from all your previous experiences and stuff and all the other ones that went smoothly, but then you come across this one and through your overconfidence, that was, you know, I guess maybe like a false sense of confidence and maybe to some extent um, negligence as well because yeah. of your confidence. But we don't even it know, right? Because it could have been that everything else would have been fine. Mm. I, think, I think this question becomes really hard to answer mm. if we look at it as just the case. Mm. If we look at it at just <coughs> what happened in this case, yeah, I think then from that point of view, there was a there was a standard that wasn't met. Mm. Yeah. Okay, that's not arguable mm. in this particular one case. But when we're extrapolating to the ability of the doctor as a whole, I don't think it's really possible to even answer mm. that. Mm. Maybe they just had a really rough night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a relative. So, yeah. But did they systematically also not check the potassium mm. of every other patient that they had reviewed? Right. And this was the first time they got unlucky. So now it's a really different picture. And if there was a doctor that consistently yeah. did not check the blood tests of any mm. patient they reviewed, would they be competent? No, no. it's a no, that's just a straight no. Mm. And so I think the question now shifts from, are they good or bad? Or do we make a judgment based on someone's specific outcome? outcome. Yeah. And we're looking at that. Mm. Or the other things that they were doing well, they got through how, however many consecutive days. They saw 200 patients. They mm. discharged you know, 200 patients during the two-week period of time. They reviewed 50 different patients. They had you know, 14 experience. ward rounds. You yeah. know, there were all these markers of experience mm. that would have said, oh, yeah, therefore this person would be an experienced, competent yeah. doctor. Yeah. But if you actually really look at the processes behind what makes a difference, maybe that was all irrelevant. Maybe mm. 200 consecutive times they'd made a mistake. Maybe right. every single day, every single time there was something there. And that would have gone completely missing if they hadn't actually 
been measuring what really mattered mm. over time, mm. which is more which is more about that process rather than that outcome. Mm. Yeah, right. Ooh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and it might have just been that those previous two hundred times the redundancy that's built in in the system would have you know been the safety net. Yeah, that might have been why they didn't slip through, but this time it was. But mm. the question still stands, and like you said, how are we going to measure whether this person was competent or not? Yeah, well, you, you, yeah. you, yeah, well, so the only option is to then do a review of that person's system, right? Mm. And then the process. And this is the exact same trend and pattern that I see with my students, mm. right? And that I see with not just my students, but just people around in general, even just hearsay from family, friends mm. that I hear. Mm. You know, there are all these apparent markers <coughs> that we look at that are meant to tell us a proxy measure of someone's ability or progress or success or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, this person has X amount of money. This person has gone through X amount of years of university. They must mm -hmm. be however on track or however successful or whatever pathway they're on. And yeah. it's like, well, really, how important are those markers? Did mm. you measure their fulfillment? Did you measure their happiness? Did you measure their knowledge? Did yeah. you, you know? There are so many people in their seventh year of university mm. that are just as, even if not even more lost than someone in their first year. Mm of university or there's yeah. someone who took a six year gap year after high school who was so much more on track to life than someone who straight away went in to be an engineer or a doctor mm. or, you know, one of those typical yeah. standard pathways. And society is like plagued by all of these misconceptions of these various proxy measures that we would use to, you know, quantify or qualify our, our happiness or our fulfillment and stuff through your financial status, mm. through your social status and everything like that. Um, the fact that there's even, I guess, this idea of what being on track means. It's like you say on track, and mm. I know exactly what you mean by that. Exactly, that's kind of broken, right? Yeah, but it's like, what does that even truly mean? Yeah. What are you measuring? What are you deciding is important um, that makes you on track? Mm. And so I guess that's sort of coming back to that idea. It's like it's more about the process than mm. the actual outcome yeah. or what you're, what you choose to measure and what you choose to value um, that comes out of that process, mm. I guess. Exactly. So then for someone now living in the present moment, obviously you can always look retrospectively and see how things went. Mm. How do you know what to measure now? How do you know what's worth measuring in the current kind of moment? Mm. I have a, per I actually have a method for doing this. I actually have a, system that I use and I teach for on this particular thing. On how to measure what's important? S sort of, yeah, yeah. On how mm. to figure out what's important and whether your actions are aligned to producing that important outcome or if you're kind of going off in a different direction. Mm. I imagine it would be something around your value system. Personality, passion, No, interest. that's, uh, you know, that is uh, <laughs> not only a fantastic YouTube video <laughs> that is out on my channel at Dr. Justin Song, which you can easily look up, but... Uh, no, this actually, this is different. It's different. Um, I actually don't think I've made a, a public video about this yet. It's mm. just on my courses. Mm. But, but before, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what that one is, but mm. what do you guys think? Like, how do you figure out what is the thing to measure? How do you know what is the right thing to be measuring? And whether you have, because, okay, before you answer, mm. it can be really difficult to figure out whether you have been measuring the wrong thing the whole time, mm. partly because it's almost uncomfortable to accept that maybe you've been calibrating your entire life on the wrong thing. Mm. Especially if you've been doing, if, especially if you're older and you know, mm. yeah. doing it for a long time. Yeah, I almost like. I mean, it's just, this is like my mind's breaking thinking about yeah. this and stuff because I can drive myself in circles. But um, I suppose with any sort of scientific experiment, we'd have to measure things, and based on our measurements, we then come to some sort of 
conclusion through that. Um, and I suppose if we were to treat life in the same way and our experiences as a sort of experiment in that way, we would only be able to judge whether what we're measuring is correct or not, I guess, ultimately after some time, once we do some reflection, once we do some sort of you know, contemplation about how we feel, what we've learned through the process, the relationships that we've made, um, our fulfillment, our satisfaction, our happiness to some extent as well. Um, and it's so, so hard to know if you're on the right track right now itself. Mm. I feel like it's going to be a, you know, like I often describe the, you know, I guess the system of walking is just constantly falling and catching yourself, mm. you know? Yeah, that's good. And so <laughs> constantly... Quote. I think you're getting more metaphorical <laughs> these days. I think it's wow. my, in, in my influence, I think. <laughs> oh, come on. No, uh, I'm taking no, credit. No, for you can take credit for it now. Um, but, you know, like it's... it's um, it's you're 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 gonna constantly keep learning and constantly have to fail in order to get better um, through each of these experiences in order to know what actually would matter. Mm. And I feel like people that have had those really really simple, you know, easy cushioned sheltered lives wouldn't really understand or know what they would feel fulfilled by because you know they might be so comfortable that you know that that's fulfilled for them. like that that's that's all they can understand of their concept of fulfillment, mm. and they can't understand that there's actually something outside of that because they haven't put themselves in a situation where they could fail to realize that hmm, there's something bigger outside this soft mm. cushion sheltered place that i've been in and that is a wider sense of fulfillment and that's mm. I, I could be using that as my basis of measurement and stuff mm. and so so i suppose my framework so far has just been you know you're um, failing to then determine what you can succeed at or or to put it would just be like like how like your your poor experiences to determine what actually matters i guess in the end yeah we're just failing to learn yeah i think for me just the whole measuring thing it might come down to what your values were at the time mm. in a way so for that in that doctor example it's sort of this doctor valued getting through patients rather than seeing to and treating the entire patient in a way and maybe that like for example that could be why they didn't look at those things because they valued just getting through it and mm. going on to the next patient and spending less time more than they did actually treating that patient. Mm. And so I think it's if you look at what your values are and what you are currently doing and you put those values into your actions, that's sort of, I guess that's what you're measuring in a way. To me, it's like you should measure if the way that you act aligns with what, you what you're valuing. Values but it's hard then. to... Yeah, well, yeah, like, <laughs> I, I completely agree. Yeah. But then I was like, okay, hold on. And this is why I was in circles initially. How do I assess my values? What are my values? How do, how do you know that your values are good values? Which is comes and, I mean, to what you were saying, which is that your well, values yeah, are only based on this Yeah, yeah, of. yeah. I think, like, I mean, going outside of the scope maybe of what we're talking about here, people have different sources of what they would value in and some might be their faith, some might be their family relationships, some might be past experiences. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah mm. I, I don't know. I don't know what to And so I'm, I think, I'm yeah, so it confused. kind of becomes this thing where it's like instead of, I guess, looking at the outcomes or mm. like finding, I guess, something to show at the end that you were following your values, it's sort of a process of self-reflection as you go through each day or as you go through each phase of your life that mm. you would be aligning those things. And like we always say, like life is a journey, nothing is fixed mm. and your values will evolve, but with that your actions should too. Mm.
Yeah, I actually almost don't have to add anything because my system is pretty much just a combination of that. It's just... Nice. Um, yeah, well done. <laughs> okay, that was... That's what just happened? <laughs> well, let's... Uh, if you're only listening to this on the podcast, you just have to figure out what happened on <laughs> our YouTube. Yes. Watch that video to figure out that. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward moment that just occurred. <laughs> I had the pleasure of witnessing it firsthand. <laughs> and you can too, if you follow us on social media. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I, I kind of broke it down into a three-step three steps system, which is pretty much just a systemized version of what you were both saying. Mm. Almost exactly, actually. So what I, um, what I noticed in myself a lot and with the students that I worked with was that a lot of the values are kind of fixed and protected. Mm. What I mean by that is that they're protected and shielded from ourselves to challenge them we almost hold them in such a sacred position that we're not willing to actually challenge them mm. and be open about it. Because we value it. Because almost. we value yeah. it. And we want and to protect that. We yeah. kind yeah. of become like, this is how mm. I should act or this is how I would have acted. And, mm. and even you know, even throughout school and that kind of thing, when your values change and as you grow older, you sometimes be like, oh, I'm not how I used to be. And it's kind of looked at as a bad thing in a way. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Like when you're at a younger age, it's like you you know, your kind of your changes, yeah. basically. Like yeah, you're not you, you that's not something that I I would usually do. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but there that is can a change. sort of ideal version of who you were based on who you are. Mm. And then you just identity. think any Yeah, there's an identity formed around certain values. But the thing is, you know, values have different tiers. Mm. So you could have a value that is at that time kind of, you know, important to you, but it's also transient. You, that could change. Mm. Um, like you might really value family at one point in your life and then at, at some point you might think actually you know, I'm not super keen on having a family anymore I'd mm. rather be solo or something like that right? You, so that kind of thing can be malleable and there are obviously other values that are much more core mm. and rooted but it's really hard to actually see that when just the concept of values is just arbitrarily sort of locked in place and mm. I don't want to get into the super detail but actually Neil I've, I've talked to you about this before as well I remember a couple of years ago a few years oh, ago having yeah, this jog my memory a, yeah. a similar conversation around the idea okay. of religion oh uh, yeah which yeah. is that you know you know if you're if you want to be religious mm. you should actually be actively challenging your faith and Absolutely. religion and challenging your thoughts around it to reach some kind of processed conclusion mm. right so mm. I think it's the same for any uh, belief mm not just a value like being religious, but mm. being ambitious, <laughs> being, for me, like efficient, being uh, whatever. Challenged, being challenged yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. So I, th I think num the step number one is identify, you know, how fixed and how locked in place are some of the values that you hold. Mm. And I think if you really critically ask yourself that question, mm. I think a lot of us will be very disappointed in ourselves and how fixed we are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely was. Mm. I certainly was. Mm. And so yeah, yeah. Um, so well, that's step number one, and then the second step after that is then okay, what experiences can I do and engage in that are going to challenge that in a meaningful way? And yeah. the meaningful way is the important part. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not saying, well, I value you know respecting other people. I'm just gonna spit on some elderly <laughs> and to challenge that. It's like, oh, well, that made me feel bad. So I guess that, <laughs> that is a, it must be the right value. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but like if you if you really value like um, being empathetic or compassionate. Okay, that's a value that you hold mm. and is important to your life. Well, then go do go, do jobs and work that are devoid of some of that maybe and mm. see, okay, does that really bug you? And if it yeah. doesn't, then like, is that really, mm. you know, so big? Or, or do something that has a lot of that. Did it mm. really provide you that much fulfillment that mm. you thought? So there's this thing called the feedback analysis loop, mm. FAL, 
And it's just two, a Venn diagram of two circles, mm. the expectation on one hand and the reality on the other, and just see how big the overlap is. That's the decision-making book you have, right? It's, in, the dis- it's, in, it's in this book uh, yeah. that I've read a while ago. It's very good. I, th- I think it's called 50 Models for Strategic Decision-Making yeah. or Strategic Thinking or something like that. Um, but it's uh, the feedback analysis loop is a well-known model mm-hmm. uh, outside mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you simply just do that. You say, okay, I expect based on my hypothesis of an experiment that this is a value that I hold. So if I engage in this, I should feel this way and I should feel this way in another. Mm-hmm. And you simply engage in those experiences. And so the second step is to do the do the experiment, but I say experiment aggressively. Mm. And when I say aggressively, I just mean just Give do it a good it. shot. Like yeah. literally just do, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, I often tell my students if I feel like that's going to be an issue, I say do it by the end of the day. Mm. Engage in the experience today. Mm. Don't even like minimize the planning to the m- least possible amount and just go and engage in an experience. Mm. You know, mm. So something like, you know, go volunteer at a place. L- literally just rock up to a place yeah. and just say like, I hey, help. I want to help. Like, is there anything that I can do? And mm. I might say, oh, I'll come back, whatever. And just say, okay, fine. And then just go find somewhere else and mm. just go, hey, can I help? Mm. Can I do anything? Mm. Well, just, you know, like there will be opportunities to do that. And actually, Always. one of the, the second biggest thing after the kind of locked value syndrome mm. is that people have values that they that they know they should challenge it, and yet they put off the experimentation for so long that they just give up and they don't care anymore. Mm. And then the third part is just getting that constant feedback mm. yeah. and iteration. And, and it's even refining. just, I mean, it's even challenge going back to the challenging your values part. It's just sometimes there are values that we are told to have I feel, from family, from society, from just the people that you surround yourself, even what you read, you know, um, we're very... We've internalized. We can, yeah, we can be influenced very easily and it's sort of, you know, there's lots of different things that make up what a good person is. Mm. And so just because your values aren't necessarily the same as someone else's, it doesn't mean to say that there's something wrong with that or that you need to change that. It's just kind of about that whole process thing. It's like, what do you value find actions that align with those Mm. values? Let me be controversial here and actually take that (laughs) even a step further. (laughs) You could could be someone that gains enjoyment from literally just murdering people. Sure, yeah. Okay? And inherently, is that wrong? Yes. Says who? Says God. God, yeah. So <laughs> if you get the best one, no, but yeah, so if a lion kills its, if a lion kills its prey, is mm. that wrong? No, well, yeah, but why? So at what at what point of the species of the you know? So what yeah. if a monkey kills another monkey? Mm. And yeah, what if the chimp kills another chimp? You know, like yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. W- basically, the idea is like you know ethics in general. Yeah. Mm. There is no ethical principle that is dictated as it being inherently right and wrong. It's something that we have decided and established being right and wrong. Mm. Great example of this is like slavery. Mm. Slavery was just the norm. Mm. You, know, you don't have mm. a slave. You must be poor. Mm. Not like you're ethically whatever. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I feel like, I mean, we're not, g- I don't want to go into the, like the apologetical sort of arguments and stuff that we're saying. I don't know. Probably not the same, like the correct audience and stuff for that. But um, like, I definitely get what, get what to what, hear what you're saying, though. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the point is that it's not, yeah, not only uh, relative. virtues and beliefs that we feel like we should have, but even the ones that we commonly accept that it's good to have, we're simply just saying that we're not willing to accept the consequence of violating that. Mm. That's, that's basically it, mm. right? I mean, even if, even if you are, you know, if, if it's a religious point of view saying that you're ethically a certain way, well, why don't you just do that? You're scared of burning in hell for eternity? Pussy. <laughs> you know, like that, that's really, it's like a consequence, consequential sort of, mm. you know, 
approach there. Like the virtuistic approach doesn't really exist because the virtuistic approach means that there is the virtue that you should abide by inherently, mm. but that virtue was assigned by either you know a religious reason mm. or from a societal reason. Mm. And the failure to abide by that virtue results in some kind of consequence or punishment. Mm -hmm. So if that virtue makes you feel good, well then mm. good, like you're doing it and it feels good. You're gonna do that. Mm. But if a virtue makes you feel bad, mm. being in a certain way makes you feel bad, then are you gonna keep doing that? Mm. Well, you, if you don't do that, there might be a consequence to it. Mm. And so if you're not willing to suffer the consequence, you're gonna have to abide by that virtue. And mm. it's kind of the same. Like we, we might think that academic achievement is really important to us as a value that we hold. And maybe that was a value that was instilled to us by our family or by our culture, mm. whatever it is. Well, mm. look, there's either you follow the virtue because it's fulfilling for you or you, or you abandon the virtue and it's fine too as long as you're willing to accept the consequence of it. And at a certain point, there's a line where the consequence becomes too great. For example, killing someone, there's going to be a serious consequence sure, to that. Yeah. Mm. So even if you are someone who really doesn't like the fact that you need to not kill people, mm. you're going to have to abide by that unless you're happy to just suffer that consequence of mm. it. So from an individual moral or just decision-making point of view, it, it really just comes down to the idea that the virtues, no matter what they are, they're not going to be inherently fixed. And wherever they came from, it's always just a decision of, is this something that I want to be aligned with? Am I willing to accept the consequence of not doing that? And so everything can really be challenged. Yeah. I, I don't know if that, is this nihilism? That's is not that, nihilism. That's, it's just, rel it's relativism. It's real. It's realism. But I mean, like, we're obviously not happy when someone, like, when, you know, when someone dies and someone kills someone else. Yeah, that's but the, I mean, nice yeah, obviously, but I, that was like an extreme example. But at sure. the end of the day, like, if you still challenge that, like, why are you not okay with that? You'd mm. be able to come to an answer and you'd be able to quite clearly say why you don't agree with mm. that. You I mean, let, let's go into the middle where it becomes gray, which is the reason why I want to bring the extremes. I want to bring out the concept that these virtues are not fixed, that you don't have to abide by them, mm. but you're making the decision to abide or not. Mm. So if we go into the middle and we say something like being a doctor, you, you might really value, you know, that, that career decision might be so important to you. But where does that value actually come from? Let's say that mm -hmm. you're going on your path to being a doctor and you sort of forget why you're motivated and you also hate doing it yeah. and you hate the process yeah. and you're getting stressed from it. Mm. Well, then it's worth asking yourself, okay, am I just periodically right now momentarily not motivated because I've lost sight of something due to mm. it being hard? Or is this... What, what, did I actually never really want this? Yeah. Same with your study, same with whatever it is. Like, where is it coming from? Did you just go down that path mm -hmm. and, and internalize a value that was given to you simply because you didn't want to fight against your parents mm -hmm. or get, like, disowned or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, if you challenge that, it, that might be sort of the key to figuring out that, you know, there's a certain mm -hmm. virtue or value that you thought you had mm -hmm. that you have been measuring yourself on this whole time mm -hmm thinking you were the good student, yeah. good son, yeah. good daughter, mm. whatever it is. Mm. And that's been ruining your your life because mm. of the fact that you've decided that you're gonna place a sense of identity on your ability to achieve this arbitrary metric that never had any value for you. Mm. And over time, you weren't able to create value for yourself. Mm. And if that's the case, then there's a decision to be made. Mm. Will you abandon the value and accept whatever consequence there is yeah. for the opportunity or something else? Yeah. Or will you stick down it and find a way to make it work, mm. which in some cases, in a lot of cases, mm. is not actually possible. Let me give you a real real example mm -hmm. about that. If you're in a, a family and your parents are abusive 
while you you know have just a shit relationship with your parents to the point where it's damaging for you mm. should you stay in that house mm. and stick through it mm. personally i think no yeah. i think get out I think no, but there's lots of other reasons why someone can tell mm. themselves that they should exactly. stay. You know, I have to look after my parents. Like yep. they have their own things going on. I need to be able to support them. Like financially, it's the best option for mm. me, blah, 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 blah. And so then again, it becomes about what do you value most? And it's like, mm. why are you choosing to stay versus why yeah. are you choosing yeah. to go? Are you willing to accept the consequence of each decision? Yeah. Mm. If you leave- I think I now, I now get what you mean by, are you willing to accept the consequences? Mm. Yeah. And so even the values that we inherently hold today, mm are not fixed, like universally locked in place. They're ones that we have accepted mm. and we have created consequences for or accepted consequences about. Mm. And so if even those, if even those values are in a way, you know, you can see it as malleable, mm. then the value of staying at home when you're getting beaten up by your parents mm. because, and the alternative is you find a job and find another place to live and you might get disowned by your parents, but potentially actually have a life worth living. Mm versus trying to find a way to change your parents or protect, you know, like, you know, those types of situations where there's no win condition, mm. it's a lose-lose and you figure out how you want to lose and what you want to accept, mm. then uh, I think that decision really needs to be made a lot more clearly. And I think staying in the middle is the worst decision of all because weirdly enough, I don't know why, but when I post videos about studying effectively, a lot of the people that actually message me about it are people who are in situations where they have no ability to access good education because they are locked in by their parents or something. Mm. I'll talk to people, people message me like they're living in like India or Sri Lanka and they are in a situation where their parents are like really, really, it's a not good situation. Mm. And they're asking mm. me for advice, like, should I move out? <laughs> <laughs> JTT New like Zealand. Justin yeah. Sung on Instagram. <laughs> no, yeah, no, well, uh, no, it's, it's surprising. No, I don't have a great reach, but for <laughs> some reason, I think it just happens to attract certain people in certain situations that I guess are like trying to take control of little parts of their lives, and academics happens to be one of those avenues. Mm. And uh, so it becomes like a weirdly kind of relevant conversation. This this particular example and this idea of like saying, "Hey, what's important to you? Really think what's important to you. Mm. Have you challenged that?" And maybe you should mm. just deal with whatever consequence comes out mm. from either side. But, yeah. you know, that's just my two cents. Yeah, <laughs> two, like, yeah. 2,000 cents. <laughs> no, but yeah, I feel like we we went tangential there, super, super deep, got really <laughs> sad. But then I think we sort of linked it back. But essentially, I think to summarize, maybe you guys can do a better job of this as well, but it's essentially a combination of trial and error. And it should be trial and error. It should be you constantly reevaluating yourself and putting yourself in these situations where you challenge your values, which mm -hmm. are important to have, but um, must be wrestled with to really test. Mm. Yeah. And I mm. think even at the end of the day, if you challenge values that you hold very strongly and you find that at the end of the challenge, you do still resonate with that value, it kind of, I guess, it will give you more sense of purpose Absolutely, or, yeah. or really right. strengthen that value that you have and that will show through in your character as well, that mm. you know, now mm. I know why I'm doing this. So like for the doctor example, I know why I'm here. I know I'm choosing to continue be to be a doctor and that will sort of reignite something in you to keep going or find a new sense of purpose in mm. yourself. I think that also goes back to what, you were, what we were saying just before we started recording about, you know, like personalities and... 
Um, yeah, <laughs> Emma and I were talking about how, uh, you know, particularly like social butterfly people can be adaptable to different scenarios and stuff. And I can speak from personal example, personal <laughs> experience, maybe Emma could as well, um, that, you know, like you'd be in one group of friends, maybe pretty quiet and stuff, and you'd sort of just fit yourself and your personality to fit in with those yeah. people versus a more, you know, like a much more energetic group of people and stuff over there. Um, and I think before I was the chameleon, I was able to, you know, mix and match with with the groups that I'm in and the, the environment that I'm with. But I feel like more and more through these iterations of, you know, um, falling and catching myself and falling and catching myself, I'm a lot more stable and a lot more, uh, uh, I guess, knowledgeable about what my values are and how much uh, more in line I am with them and what my identity, uh, what proportion of those values makes up my identity. And based on that, I feel like I'm actually becoming less of a chameleon yeah, now. Less a true to yourself. Just, yeah, yeah, true to myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you had to have that experience but I had to, to figure yeah. it out. And I will add, it was very uncomfortable, the yeah. transition. Yeah. So there was and a risk of a failure well. in some... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was, so it, was, it was like, who am I yeah. sort of moments, mm. yeah. So if you, if you, if you, <laughs> if you yeah. plan to succeed... If you if you're looking for the success, prepare to fail. If you're not even prepared to fail, like if you if you're looking for the win mm. and that's what you value mm. and you're looking for success, inevitably you're gonna encounter failure. Mm. But if you're just looking for the failure, then every time you get to learn. Mm. So mm. Wow. Uh, leave it at that. Let's leave yeah. it at that. All right. Thanks for watching. Thanks. As usual, <laughs> uh, if you're not following us already, uh, make sure to hit the subscribe button, leave a comment, leave a like. It really helps with the algorithm and getting our reach out as much as possible. And we appreciate all the comments that you leave and any suggestions that you have. So yeah. see you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Subcut. If you guys have any suggestions for content, please make sure you send it through. You can get in touch and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or find us on our website at jttmed.com slash subcut. Subcut is a podcast brought to you by JTT. If you or anyone you know is interested in a career in medicine, make sure to get in touch and check us out at jttmed.com.